Travel with me to a dark and isolated farm located deep in the heart of St. Mary's County, Maryland, where the only African-American farmer and his family are being tormented by some thing stalking around their property. Can they survive? Can they protect the farm that is their very livelihood? And can they do it with their sanity intact? Are you in the mood for dark, isolated, rural horror? Are books full of ghastly green goo and reanimated corpses your jam? Then check out Mulch, the eerie inaugural novella from Maniacal Books, available today on Amazon Kindle and mcsbooks.com. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we will be covering Lucis Naturae, a short story by Margaret Atwood. I'm bad at Latin pronunciations. Glenn will get them right, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> this story was originally published in 2004. We read it in the short story collection, Stone Mattress. Uh, this episode was commissioned by a Patreon supporter, uh, along with four others, one of which we've already done, called uh, The Lady in the House of Love by Angela Carter. Really enjoyed reading this story. I'm always happy to have more Margaret Atwood on my bookshelf. So thank you so much to our generous supporter who commissioned this episode. Yeah, thank you so much for commissioning all of these episodes. And yeah, we're two of five in at this point. And uh, so far, we are batting a thousand. These stories are fantastic. I really love this story as well. And and Brandon, by the way, your Latin pronunciation that's spot on. Yeah. Lucis Naturae. That's exactly it. Uh, <laughs> Good, Lucis- my Latin teacher will be happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. And his story, Lucis Naturae, is uh, just an, another story, another really brilliant story that turns our ideas about classic monsters on their heads. And uh, I'm looking forward to digging into it. But actually, Brandon, I think before we get into recapping this story, let's just chat a little bit about our experience with Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood is a phenomenally huge writer who's genre adjacent, at least in terms of publishing category, right? She doesn't get shelved generally in uh, the science fiction, fantasy, or horror sections of bookstores and libraries, even though she very definitely writes stories that fit those genres. She's somehow managed to fall into the uh, publishing category of literary fiction. Uh, and so is you know, a huge deal uh, outside even of just the sort of normal circles that we run in. And I just wonder if you have a lot of experience reading her work. Um, Yeah, I do have a fair amount of experience reading her work. I read uh, The Blind Assassin ages ago, probably not too long after it came out, maybe within five years of it being released. I loved it. Then I read Oryx and Crake, uh, probably read around that time, uh, probably read around the time that came out as well. That looks like it came out around 2003. So that was when I was reading a lot of Atwood. And then, um, Glenn, if you recall, when I left uh, our duty station where we met, we started a book club with a bunch of other people and we read her novel Surfacing, which I don't recall either of us liking all that much, but it was good. It had its moments. And I've been meaning to get back to her (laughs) to finish (laughs) the Mad Adam trilogy. Uh, I think I had the Penelope ad at some point. I haven't really read much of her short fiction and I've never read The Handmaid's Tale. Um, So I think my experience with her is really kind of limited to the start of her famous, I don't know, post-apocalyptic Earth Children science fiction series and The Blind Assassin and then one of her very early novels. But I, man, The Blind Assassin is really one of my favorite, I guess, Canadian novels. It has a lot of characteristics that 
Um, I associate also with, you know, Robertson Davies, another Canadian writer that just has this Canadian sense to it of like Canadian life. You think wouldn't think it's that different from American fiction, but it does have a slightly different flavor. Um, but yeah, I'm a huge fan of Margaret Atwood. I just haven't really been able to read as much of her as I have always intended. Well, you you just listed off like six books that you've read, right? So I think that's the thing, right? Is that <laughs> Margaret Atwood has been extremely, extremely prolific. And so you can have this feeling like, well, I've only read five or six books. So I guess I haven't read that much Margaret Atwood. But like, you know, she wrote more books than Tolkien did. You know, like you can say <laughs> right. I read everything Tolkien published in his own lifetime and uh, it would be fewer books than you've read by Margaret Atwood, right? So, you know, I think that you've read an awful lot of Atwood. I have as well. And our overlap is actually, like our Venn diagram is actually pretty slim. Uh, I have mostly read Margaret Atwood when I was in high school, which means that I was reading books that she published in the 80s and the 90s. I have read The Handmaid's Tale, which is absolutely brilliant. I've not watched the TV show at all. I've been wanting to reread that book. It's been on ballots for ATOS for, well, forever. And it and it keeps narrowly missing. It just never quite makes it. But the book of hers that I loved the most when I read it as a teenager anyway, it was Cat's Eye. And that's one that I, I really, really want to find a, a reason to to read again. Uh, but of course, I only get to read for podcasting. That's just what, or, you know, <laughs> if I'm reading to Finch, I guess, but that's just what my life is right now. So I was really, really excited to have this opportunity to read some Margaret Atwood. And then also, hey, now we've got this collection. As we say, every time we get a commission, hey, now we've got this collection, which means we can go to this for for other things, right? We can go to this for Patreon episodes and so on. And uh, that'll be great. So I'm really excited to get into this. So let's do it. What could be done with me? What should be done with me? These questions are the opening lines of Atwood's short story, Lucis Natori. The narrator is asking this question as much as is anyone else who knows her. Her family debates what to do with the narrator frequently around the dinner table. And if the narrator were feeling lucid, she could sit with them and debate the topic. But often she's not lucid. Often she's in the corner, meowing to herself or mewing to herself, as the text (laughs) says, listening to the, quote, twittering voices no one else can hear. So in this masterful introduction to the story, we're introduced to a character who appears to us and to herself to be perhaps insane, someone who sees herself as a burden on her family and and worse, someone whose family treats her as such. For instance, her mother wonders, what happened? The narrator was fine as a baby. And maybe she or the child did something wrong. And so the narrator's condition is a kind of judgment about sin or wrongdoing. The narrator's grandmother thinks that the girl's condition, our narrator is a girl, uh, is a curse. The father, on the other hand, tracks uh, the moment of change in the narrator, the, the moment of the sort of presentation of the disability to about of measles, age seven, And the father really then adheres to the doctor's notion that the girl has a disease that no one can cure. The family doctor has prescribed to the child the eating of bread and blood as a means of counteracting whatever disease the narrator has, which has also caused her to sprout hair on her chest and arms. And she has whiskers as well as kind of has a lot of uh, relationships with cats. And the doctor 
tells the family uh, that he had seen a case like this only once before. And so pronounces the girl as a lucis naturae, a freak of nature. Uh, you know, and we learn pretty quickly that she has porphyria, by the way. Yeah, though the, the narrator doesn't actually say that explicitly. What she writes is that the doctor, and, and here I'm quoting, uh, told us the name of the disease, which had some P's and R's in it and meant nothing to us, which is just an absolutely funny line. Like, this is a brilliant way to convey this information to us, the readers, and still then preserve the reality of the world that Margaret Atwood is building, where this is a family who wouldn't really know about that type of medical condition. And this condition, porphyria, this is actually a label for a number of related liver conditions. These commonly affect either the skin or the nervous system. It's not usually both, although in some cases it is. It's a pretty rare condition, but people have probably heard of this because in the 1970s and the 1980s, it gained some real notoriety actually as an attempt to provide like a serious business medical explanation for the folklore about vampires and werewolves. And those attempts, these were mostly done by doctors who were yeah, having a bit of fun, I guess, right? With trying to diagnose Dracula <laughs> and that sort of thing. And this was picked up by news media because these were articles that were published in like real medical journals. But then of course, scholars in various humanities disciplines, you know, People like me came in and poked a thousand or so holes in this idea, but still, it's it's fun. It's pretty cool. It's a, it's a neat idea. And then also, this was famous in the 1990s because of the film The Madness of King George, which is based on a, a similar type of uh, you know armchair doctoring, right? It's doing a kind of a retroactive diagnosis. Uh, this was the idea that King George III had a type of porphyria, though that also I think has largely been shown to be false now. But, you know, I think the thing that really matters for our purposes, of course, is this vampire stuff. And Margaret Atwood would have been well aware of this stuff in the 70s and 80s. And I think that's a big part of the, the impetus for this story. Yeah, I I think so, too. In the past, uh, if if there's a disease that a royal family member had, it's almost always syphilis. So you just <laughs> keep that in the back of your writer's pocket if, if you need something. <laughs> well, the, the narrator has a sister as well, and she has a perspective on this issue, too. The narrator's sister is concerned that because her sister, the narrator, is a lucis notori, that she, the sister, won't be able to find a mate. She won't be able to get married. And whether the family is cursed or whether there's a medical issue, it doesn't matter. Both of these cases rule out the sister finding a husband to really marry well is the idea. And the narrator recognizes that this is an issue. She smells like blood. Her only friend is a cat. She roams around at night and sleeps during the day. The neighbors all think she has a wasting illness. This is kind of a lie perpetuated by the family. And all of this is really just a major inconvenience for the family, particularly as it stunts her sister's potential well-being. So the family decides that it's just time for the narrator to die. And the grandmother says, in support of this decision, better one happy than both miserable. And I mean, it's really being communicated to us how this girl... Our narrator is just deeply unloved by her family and also like deeply supportive of that because she's conditioned to think of herself as a problem. Yeah, her father, though, does 
to me at least, seemed to try to love her, right? He he teaches her to read. He even used to have her sit on his lap and you know, like snuggle into the crook of his arm, though they don't do that anymore, like now that she's actually you know, drinking blood, right? So now they sit across a table from each other to read together. And I do actually want to talk about this family dynamic and the discussion. It's actually really what I want to give the bulk of the discussion over to. So I won't say much more about that here, but I do also want to mention that there is some class stuff going on in this story, right? This this family here, this family is doing well financially, and they are close to entering the ranks of the gentry. And gentry actually is the word here in the text. But in order to pull that off, they need a good marriage for, you know, one of the daughters here to finish this bit of upward mobility. So, you know, like this is basically the exact plot of every Jane Austen novel, <laughs> right? So we'll talk about that a little bit more in the discussion too. Uh, and then finally here, this this point of, uh, of pausing here, I just want to talk about this phrase, lucis naturae, which, you know, it's the name of the story. It's come up already. And I, I want to gloss what this actually means. We get the term from the doctor who wants to take the narrator to the city so that other doctors can look at her and you know, study her condition, right? And the doctor glosses the term lucis naturae as freak of nature. And freak's a really interesting word for us, right? It, it shows up in the 16th century we don't really know where that word comes from, like the, the etymology of it. Now, of course, this is a word we use a lot in our own colloquial conversations, mostly to mean weirdo, but its earlier meanings are more like sudden or unexplained, which then we also use when we talk about like a, a freak accident or a, a freak storm, right? And, you know, we obviously still use those terms as well. But Really what I'm driving at here is that this is just not the the word freak is not the word that I would use to translate lucis from Latin. Uh, lucis, it comes from the verb ludo, which also has a corresponding noun ludus. And these actually have to do with playing sports or, or playing with toys. Uh, gladiator games, for example, are ludi, which is just the, the, the plural of ludus. So a instance of gladiator games is a ludus. But this word can also mean trick, uh, really, like specifically, like the sort of thing that uh, Fred and George Weasley are into, right, as an example. <laughs> and I think that's actually probably the word that I would use here, or maybe joke, although Latin has another set of words for like funny haha jokes. So I would probably call this like trick of nature or joke of nature rather than freak of nature. Yeah, I'm really glad you did that because I didn't bother to look it up knowing that you're the the, the Latin reader <laughs> of the two of us. And uh, that makes a lot of sense. I think the the idea of, of the freak or trick of nature, the, you know, freak is a much more heavily freighted word in our culture as you as you did a great job of pointing out. So the idea of trick to kind of push the translation to, I think, the sense of what the doctor means is... Uh, is what Atwood did here. But yeah, if we were doing the literal translation, I, I really like the idea of trick of nature, that this is a kind of a cruel, mischievous trick that nature has some somehow played on this, on this narrator. Yeah. And I guess that's really what I was trying to, to get at there is that I want to capture that sense of it rather than merely have the, the sense of this being just kind of a, a neutral accident. Because I think that an actual Latin speaker or, you know, someone in early modernity who's using Latin as their 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 science language here, these types of doctors, that they they had that sense 
uh, this kind of mischievous, negative, and, and unfortunate sense packed into the, the meaning there rather than, I think, a sort of neutral way that we would use that now. Well, in any event, the family bribes the priest in order to hold a funeral and, you know, basically sign a death certificate for the narrator. And the priest told the narrator that this is her sacrifice to make. It's her burden to carry. But that's actually just a, a really a blessing. It's, it's a good thing to be called upon in this way by God, especially because this girl will remain a virgin until she dies because no man will want her. And that's something that's going to get her some extra points in heaven. So the girl is forced to play dead in a coffin for an open casket wake. That seems like isn't that's not the choice I would make. Uh, the wake lasts two days so that people can come and pay their respects. And then on the third day, they bury the girl's coffin but it's filled with straw. And now the narrator is able to live in a world where everyone thinks her dead. But this really frees the narrator. No one but her mother comes to her room anymore. Her parents say that they keep the girl's room the same as when the narrator was alive, as a shrine to her memory. A picture is hung on the girl's bedroom door. And now the narrator avoids mirrors because she doesn't want to read she doesn't want to see her reflection. She reads Pushkin and Byron and Keats in the dim light. She eats potatoes and drinks blood. And that's about all the interaction she gets when her mother comes to bring her food. Where, you know, once her mother would show her some affection, we learned that sadly that time has passed now. And the narrator says of this, of her situation, quote, there's only so long you can feel sorry for a person before you come to feel that their affliction is an act of malice committed by them against you. But when all is said and done, apart from the terrible pain and fits associated with her illness, the narrator in this time could almost be said to be happy. This line about coming to feel that a person's affliction is an act of malice against you, this is an absolutely great line. I think this really captures the experience that so many people with chronic illness have, right? You are actually yourself afflicted by something that requires care or makes it difficult to do certain things. And so you're at least a little bit dependent on people. I mean, we're all a little bit dependent on people or actually a lot bit dependent on people. That's what it is to live in a society and a civilization, right? But when you've got a chronic illness, you can be more dependent on people. And those people that you're dependent on can come to resent you for that dependency as if it's something that you are doing to them. And Atwood here captures just really all of the heartbreak of that situation in just this one line. This is just really amazing writing here. In the few novels uh, and stories that I've read by Atwood, one thing that really jumps out to me as a through line of her work is how she's able to capture this sense or really the tension in our society between the drive for independence and our duties to each other and how burdensome that feels when what it feels like society asks of us is to be free from all need of others. And the the ten, it's true tension. I mean, it drives the conflict, I think, of the blind assassin and even surfacing on some level that that sort of feeling 
creates in in us and in her protagonists and characters and it's kind of a, it reminds me a little bit of the way the romantics play with the tension between uh, the solitude, beauty, uh, perhaps danger, slight danger of nature, the testing yourself in nature and the living in the city and the way people interact with each other. And I think that that's just a really strong theme in Atwood's work. I'm no expert on her. So in the three novels I read, like I said, that's what I see coming across here. And I think that's summed up so perfectly in this line. And it, it might not even just be a chronic illness. It might just be kind of a natural side effect of hyper individualism. Well, I think it's totally fair to claim that one of the things that Margaret Atwood does in most of her books and also does so well is to zoom in on the minutiae of people's relationships and look at the fault lines and and tug on those a little bit. I guess you don't really tug on fault lines, but you know, I'm doing that thing where I mix <laughs> Someone's metaphors. Someone's doing that. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she sees what happens, right? And tracing these these just tracing these small scale uh, events and then the nuances of of different and overlapping relationships. She's really brilliant at it and here it is in this story certainly on on full display. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. I, I really, I mean, reading this story has made me just want to go back and, and read the Atwood novels I haven't read. I mean, really, I feel like I have to finish the Mad Adam trilogy that starts with Oryx and Crake, but I don't know. That's a conversation probably <laughs> for offline. Well, in any event, uh, the narrator's family starts to die. This is presumably of natural causes, and the narrator realizes that at some point she will have to be alone, that at some point she's going to have to look after and take care of herself. So she takes on the difficult task of experimenting with her boundaries in order to realize her true power. She feels she has more power when she is not seen by others, but she feels she has the most power when she is only partly seen. For instance, she frightens two children in the woods, showing them her pink teeth and her fairy and her hairy face. And soon, rumors sprout up around her family's house and land. People start to avoid the part of the forest where the narrator roams at night. The narrator's mother ends up selling the farm with uh, an appropriate amount of guilt, only a little bit, associated with the sale. And the narrator's in favor of this decision. Uh, she knows of a place that she can stay, so she doesn't need the house. So while the new family moves in, and I should say that the mother does this in order to kind of be close to the other daughter. And she's also getting old, I suppose. Anyway, while the new family moves into the farmhouse, the narrator stays inside of a hayrick. And once the family moves in, the narrator basically haunts the house because she knows all of its secrets, all the doors, all the creaks of the floorboards, all the hidden hallways. She'd touch a new inhabitant's face in the middle of the night or cause a door or a floorboard to groan. She ate stolen potatoes and eggs, and sometimes she'd steal a hen to drink its blood. She even scares the guard dogs who don't react to her because they don't know what to make of her. And when she catches herself in the mirror, she doesn't see herself. She doesn't see the girl she remembers, but something else entirely. The dead, she says, cannot see their own reflections. I love this part of the story. I mean, we've 
all had some experience of exactly this type of story, but from the perspective of the family that's moved into the new house, only to discover that it's haunted. And this idea that the haunter is actually just a person and that this whole haunting business was completely premeditated is actually just really hilarious to me. And I would definitely read another story or watch a movie where this premise is rendered more central and maybe dialed up to 11 and and done perhaps with a little more humor than it is here. But still, this just really tickled me. I love this part of the story. Uh, like, let me recommend to you the pseudo slasher home invasion thriller, You're Next, uh, which <laughs> takes up this premise, but okay. it's really over, just over the course of one night and uh, turns, you know, the final girl idea on its head. Uh, that's a, it's a really fun horror uh, slasher movie. Uh, anyway, yeah, this is this is the like home invasion terror that people feel. I mean, when you you get chills on the back of your neck uh, from reading an article, I don't know, from uh, a couple years ago, many years ago about the, the woman who found a man living in her closet or in the crawl space in her house or something. Uh, th- this is just, uh, I think, just such an innate terror that somebody could so easily violate the taboo of the of the portal of the doorway and live in your house without you knowing it oh i love it and 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 i think atwood captures as you said this playful element to that type of horror really well well we're, we're coming to the end of the story now one evening at dusk the narrator was picking blackberries at a place where the meadow meets the trees she saw a young man and a woman uh, furtively glancing around. They're trying to find a place of total privacy away from prying eyes. They don't know the narrator's there, though, and the narrator hides in order to watch them and figure out what they're like, and she hears the same sort of mewing sounds and growls that she makes herself when she's in a fit. These are sounds she's familiar with. This is the song of her people, so to speak. These This young couple, they're not hairy like she is, but their movements are fit-like. So she thinks that they're just in the early stages of the disease that she has. And she wants to join them. She wants to be with people like her. And this couple even bites each other occasionally. And the boy and girl then return to this spot, uh, this private spot, on several occasions. And one night after they have their fits in the moonlight, uh, the man falls asleep and the girl leaves after giving him a kiss. And then the narrator comes up to the man and she says in the narrative that she loses control of herself. She bites the man on the neck in, in, in a fit of either lust or hunger. She can't tell. And the man wakes up at this and sees the narrator's pink teeth and yellow eyes. The narrator is startled and she runs away, her black dress fluttering behind her. The man returns to the village and tells the villagers what happened. And the villagers wonder about the girl who used to live in that house. They dig up her coffin and they find that it's empty. So now, in the present of the narrative... The villagers are marching toward the old farmhouse with stakes and torches. The girl sees her sister among the crowd and her brother-in-law. She sees the boy she tried to kiss. And how will she be able to explain her situation to these people? 
Can she tell them that she's a human like them? She's not. She knows she's a Lucis Naturae. Can she tell them to take her to a city to be studied? Will they listen? Mostly, she's sad about losing her cat. She figures that whatever they do to her, they'll also do to the cat. I guess Atwood is playing here with the idea of like a witch's familiar or something like that. Uh, deep down, though, the narrator is a deeply forgiving person. She knows these people only have the best of intentions, really, to protect their community. So she's put on her white funeral dress as befits a virgin, and she's standing on the roof of her house and says that it's time to take flight. She'll fall from the burning rooftop like a comet. She'll blaze like a bonfire. The people will say charms over her ashes to make sure she doesn't come back. She'll become a legend. She also knows that she'll be going to heaven and hopes that when she gets there, that she will look like an angel. Or maybe the angels will look as she does now. What a surprise that will be for everyone. So she's really looking forward to it. And that's where the story ends. Wow. Yeah. This is an extraordinary and extraordinarily sardonic ending. The narrator here has just decided to become the thing that everyone thinks she is, right? She's just decided to become a monster, the kind of monster that they've got in their folklore, which you know we would call a vampire, right? And in the end, she's going to treat her death as a kind of joke on these villagers, on the community that she grew up in, or at least grew up, you know, within, uh, if not actually being a member of that community. And it's funny to her that they're going to tell stories about how they killed a vampire, but, you know, she's in on the joke, right? She knows that she's not actually a vampire. And so this is funny to her. Though I also think this is sad, right? Because she just resigns herself to her death instead of trying to escape. And so there's an element here, and maybe it's a big element where, she is just allowing herself and, and her life to be defined by other people. And she just goes along with it. That, that's really where that tension comes in. Uh, how, what is her opportunity to really be an individual that's not in need of her community and socialization? Her need to eat is defined by crimes um, nobody in the community will take care of her because she's monstrous and she's been treated as monstrous from the time she was a child. The time to go to the doctors is well past because she enjoys her independence. And yet now at the end, she's thinking, this is the life I've chosen. This is how I can be free. And this is how it's going to end. And so that tension I was talking about before is, is just a, a deep part of how this story is structured. And it's totally heartbreaking because there are actual solutions to everything that you've just described here. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, it just that she didn't have to live this life this way. Well, the things that we know about her for sure, that she's she's uh, quite intelligent. She's totally capable. I mean, she pulls this whole, you know, haunted house prank on the new people who move in <laughs> as a way of getting a home for herself to live in. And and she doesn't even have to pay a mortgage for it. Like, I want to pull this trick, you know? This is, <laughs> this is clever. This is extremely clever. She's totally capable. It's simply that because she's 
living outside of a family unit at this point that she's having to resort to yeah things that, as you say, are kind of criminal in the sense of like, you know, stealing chickens and that sort of thing. But she could easily just have continued to live with her family and been fed hen's blood and and whatever other you know food that she needed to survive with this liver condition that she's got. She's really been shoved into living like an actual vampire simply because her her family is ashamed of her because they wouldn't just say to the community, yeah, our daughter has this condition. She looks different and it could even be that her appearance scares you or unsettles you. But so what? She's our daughter. She's in our family. And this is how we how we take care of her. But they don't prioritize her. Right. And so she's forced into living this way. Right. She becomes an obstacle to the family's goal of social mobility. And rather, what we'd think of uh, as the the benefits of this kind of modern, uh, still hyper-local community um, that's agrarian, obviously, is one of, we'd think one of the benefits of a society like that is that uh, if you're part of the in-group, you're part of the in-group. It's the family, as you said, could easily have made a way for her to be part of that social community by saying, this is who she is. I mean, obviously the priest knew about her, but he, even he is not willing to say to his congregation that she's a, she's a member of our community and this is what it takes. Instead, she's treated as an abomination because of her condition. She's treated as monstrous. And so as much as she enjoys the kind of life that she's created for herself, she's also, an outcast due to the kind of conspiracy of secrets that surround her existence. And so that's another element of this kind of ostracization that she is experiencing. And I think Atwood, you know, as short as this story is, this this story is only 10 pages long in this uh, collection that we've got. It's not a very long story at all. It's quite a short story. It, even in just this very small word count, Atwood is, I think, able to infuse a lot of nuance into the story and show us that even within the narrator's family, different members of that family are actually reacting to her condition differently and treating her differently, right? So, you know, zoomed out, right? This is the story of this girl who develops, you know, some kind of medical condition in her childhood. It's a condition that affects the way she looks. So she's hairy, she's got yellow eyes, she's got claws. It is also the condition that affects her nervous system, right? We know that she's not always lucid, and sometimes she hears voices, though this doesn't really factor into the outcome of the story, and seems like it may actually be less of a, a, a hindrance or an, an obstacle, just less serious of a condition than a few lines that she gives us early in the story make it seem like. But at any rate here, I'm, I'm really just trying to summarize, paint a picture. We've gone through all of this, obviously, right? But the point is, you've got a kid who starts to show these symptoms. And by the time we, the readers, come into the story, right, this condition is in full effect. And this allows us, I think, to see that different members of her family are, in fact, treating her differently. And I pointed out during the recap that her father, to me at least, seems to be the one who continues to really treat her like a person, to actually love her, to be her dad, right? To have a, a personal relationship with her. But ultimately, the family makes decisions as if the narrator is not a person. And they do this in order to achieve ends that 
don't do anything for the narrator. Like these ends are not about her. And they also don't even factor her into them, right? It doesn't seem like anyone is thinking about what is going to become of her when the rest of her family is dead, in particular, right, when her parents are dead and her sister has married into a new family, what's going to become of the narrator? This doesn't seem to be something they've made any provisions for, right? And so my question for you, Brandon, here as we move into the discussion is about how the family actually got to this point, because I don't really think that the father is calling the shots in this family. And I think that this story, if it were told from his perspective, would be just as heartbreaking as it is from the narrator's perspective, right? Where he, in my reading anyway, would be struggling against the other members of his family, trying to make a case for caring for the narrator and being shot down, failing to do that, failing to protect his his daughter here. And so here really then is the question I've got, I guess, Brandon, although of course you'll want to comment on my reading of this at all. But if, if you agree with me that the father is not really calling the shots in this family, who is? Who is really kind of the, the dominating or domineering voice in this family, do you think? It's uh, social expectations, I think. So that might sound like a cop-out, but I have a kind of robust explanation for why I think this. I think uh, hopefully it'll, it'll make sense. So uh, Margaret Atwood is doing something really tremendous here. Where with the family dynamic, where she's showing these different attitudes and how they're driving people's motivations. And she's doing that by looking at uh, the grandmother who is still living in an enchanted world. And I assume the grandmother is the maternal grandmother. So she thinks this is a curse. So somebody cursed them and it's some misfortune of luck or something, but cursed things are to be abhorred. And that's a representative of a view of the world being an enchanted place. The mother grew up in an environment like that, and she's really torn, but she's also doesn't have that kind of sense of uh, maybe paganism or witchcraft in herself. She grew up in a different world than her mother and they're a good Christian family. And so she thinks it's a judgment for sin. So the world isn't really still quite enchanted, but the way that the concepts of Christianity are functioning in the household lead her to believe that a physical malady is a judgment on a moral condition. The family is doing well financially, and so upward mobility is still a goal for this family. And that plays into the father's point of view. He's got his goals as a provider of the family to continue this upwardly mobile track that they're on. And first, we see the father in a position where he's using kind of uh, his powers of rationality to support an empirical science type of situation. So the doctor's right. The measles might have caused this or led to some kind of other issue. Um, She just has a condition. We can manage the condition. And this is rational. But that logic, his rational mind is then co-opted by the logic of economic mobility. And so what about his other daughter, who he also probably loves a lot? What is the best for her? And so when the priest and the family who represent these different views, particularly the sister of the narrator, who says, 
well, what about my life? What about how this family is providing opportunities for me? The father's rationality is kind of co-opted by uh, an economic or a social rationale rather than an empirical one that he can use to care for his sick daughter. And so what what really guides the decision-making then is the way that the rationalities are co-opted ultimately to serve an economic end. And that sounds like, I don't know, like some kind of capitalist or like leftist critique of economic systems, but it's not. I think, I think Atwood is really showing the way that our bonds can be morphed to serve ends that are not healthy for those that we are bonded to or duty bound to by justifying different sorts of bonds or different motivations that we all share to have a better life, to care for our family. Um, And so this girl is kind of sacrificed because in each case, she's viewed as an obstacle to um, a sense of an enchanted world, though that's the only one that her condition really works with. She's an obstacle to the view of society that this family is actually good Christian people because something like that can only come from a judgment from sin. When her condition doesn't get better, it only worsens. Even with the doctor's prescriptions, the father's rationale is defeated. And then when the sister actually needs to make a match in order to serve the family and have a good life for herself, all of that other rationales co-opted into that goal. So that's how I see the family dynamic really functioning here. I'm going to push you on this because I don't think you've actually really explained anything about the family dynamic. And even just your grammar of this is <laughs> is, is doing the trick. You're like you're, you're just doing the same thing that Margaret Atwood has, has done here, which is a brilliant writing technique, which is that the paragraph where we get all of this uh, begins with uh, a sentence that is, uh, both impersonal and passive. And the sentence is, it was decided that I should die. And so we don't know, you know, who decided that? How was this decision arrived at? And and this is what I really want to find out. I guess I want to envision that the family is around the table and having a conversation about what they should do. Whose idea do you think it is to fake the narrator's death? Is it the father's? Is it the mother's? Is it the the grandmother's? Uh, and before I, I kick that back to you, Brandon, let me just as an aside say that I 100% agree with you. And this was a follow-up question that I had, uh, that the grandmother is mom's mom. This is the maternal grandmother for sure. This is not the father's mother. Yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's a great question. And you're right to push me on it because I'm taking the <laughs> narrator's uh, position of sort of excusing all of this as a matter of course. But I'm really glad you pointed out this kind of really vicious decision that's made to set to genuinely just sacrifice this girl so that everybody can get what they want. Um, I I don't know who it's de- whose decision it was. I can't imagine it came from the grandmother. I can't imagine it came from the mother. My guess is that it's one of these things that emerged. Somebody suggested it. My guess is that it's the sister, just in the way she's presented in this story. And I think Atwood has a thing with sisters in her her books. But just the way that this is suggested really in service to the sister, the grandmother's defense, which is a defense of the suggestion, um, not as the suggestion itself, suggests to me that it came from somewhere else. So I think the father did go along with it. And it sounds to me 
like this sister is kind of a bratty princess type who the family feels bad for and always wants to get their way and provide for because she has a chronically ill sister, which means that that person's probably getting a lot of attention, a lot of care, even though that's like not the case from the narrator's perspective, but from the sister's perspective, this narrator dominates what the family is capable of and what they're able to do, whether or not they're actually interacting with her. So uh, my suggestion is, my thought is it would come from the sister and then the family is moved in that direction. Yeah, I, I don't think it comes from the sister. And I guess my reading of this dynamic is that the father does not like this idea at all, but he ends up going along with it, right? Because the father's the only person that we see actually having a personal one-on-one relationship with the the narrator where they read together. Like they have a hobby that they enjoy together. And he also doesn't think this is a curse. He he thinks that there's a medical explanation for what's going on here. He seems to be the one who's advocating for, hey, our daughter's just sick and it's actually not that debilitating. She's not going to end up getting married. And that is a thing that girls are supposed to grow up and do in our society. This is this is the economic system that we live in. And so it's going to take some doing for us to continue to care for this person as she gets into adulthood. And we can't send her off to become a part of another family like we're going to do with our older daughter. But we can do this. We can manage this, right? We can treat our daughter like a person. That's how I see him behaving here in the in the story. I think it's also important that he dies before Uh, the mother does. And so the mother's the one who sells the house. And so to me, then the question that I have is who gets to outvote the father, right? It seems to me that if you're, you know, in this family dynamic and someone is saying, I think we should fake our daughter's death so that we can marry off the other daughter to another family. And one of the parents of these daughters says, no, that's a bad idea. I don't want to do that. In fact, it doesn't matter if it's a good idea or a bad idea. I don't want to do that. That that ve- That's a veto, right? That no is a veto. You need a plurality here and you're not going to get that, except that there are more than two adults in this family. There are three. And I think this is mom's mom. I think it's her idea. I think this is totally grandmother's idea because we actually get in this paragraph where this is all narrated, she's the only person who has any actual speech. And she says, better one happy than both miserable. And we don't know the way that the narrator tells us this. We don't know at what point in the conversation that actually happens. But she does, in this same sentence, tell us that the grandmother has been sticking garlic cloves around her door frame. (laughs) And then the next sentence is the narrator saying, I agreed to this plan because I wanted to be helpful. And so I think that it's definitely the maternal grandmother is the deciding factor here. She's the person that the father can't overrule who can't he can't veto her that she's really the person who's in charge of this household and so there's this grandmother here who has decided that the needs of one granddaughter are paramount over the other to the extent that you're just going to condemn this child as a monster and fake her death which is just disturbing and disgusting to me Yeah, I mean, that's a really great reading. I want to read, uh, in addition to your, and really in defense of your reading here, uh, the paragraph or a a sentence, two sentences, 
that uh, described the funeral and the family's responses to the, to the funeral, the fake funeral of the narrator. And this is what the text says. My mother sat in the kitchen and cried as if I had really died. Even my sister managed to look glum. My father wore his black suit. My grandmother baked. So <laughs> one of these things is not like the other here. Um, and so I really like that reading. I, it's really hard for me to say, but I, 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 I really appreciate where you're going with this, which is the, the, this, this sense of the family structure where the maternal grandmother really, her worldview is kind of dominating the direction of the family. And there's, there's even a tension in that worldview where there's kind of this enchanted world. Uh, there are things we can do to break a curse or to at least remove to the curse, remove the cursed person from our family. And that's the important thing is breaking the curse on this family so that at least one person can live life as society demands or is asked of them or have a good life. And uh, I really like your reading. So you've convinced me. Well, and I don't think that anything that you were saying about what's going on here is 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 wrong. You were just taking a, a, a zoomed out uh, approach to thinking about really the question of why are these the values these people even have to begin with, right? Which is an important question. Right. And that I think also might even speak to the grandmother being the real impetus here for this plan in that she's been through this once before. I mean, not exactly this, right? But she's been the mother of a daughter and has presumably sought to place that daughter into a financially advantageous marriage, knowing that she herself was going to ultimately end up, or at least be likely to end up being financially dependent on her daughter's husband. So grandma here, maternal grandma here is thinking not only of her granddaughters in this case, but her daughter as well, right? That her daughter's well-being as an old woman is going to be dependent on the granddaughter marrying uh, upwardly, right? And so she's just doing a kind of utilitarian thing here. I mean, it's literally what she says. She's doing math, right? And that's how she's coming up with the the moral calculus about this being a, a good thing to do. I really appreciate, just from a storytelling standpoint, the way that Atwood doesn't narrate this. <laughs> it's impersonal and passive, and we don't get this conversation around the table dramatized, even though I have really wanted to zoom in on that. I think it's an absolutely brilliant way to narrate it, where it is, as you were wanting to emphasize, and rightly so, Brandon, that what really matters is the narrator's acquiescence to this and the fact that she has also internalized the the value of uh, the family's survival and success and upward mobility. In, in other ways, this story really functions as a critique of Christianity, whose you know prime directive, uh, at least you know in 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 the book of James, is you know caring for widows and orphans, and so rather than the church being the place that takes in and cares for, say. Uh, a mother whose daughter didn't make a good marriage. And so she's now at the mercy of charity that the priest is more interested in taking the bribe than he is in performing his duties to ensure that this girl who he's agreeing to make this girl an orphan. She's going to be cut off from her legal rights as a child or as a daughter. Uh, if such things existed, um, any type of, 
expectation of care from her family to go along with this ruse to orphan this girl in order to ensure that he also won't have to take care of a widow. (laughs) So this, this book really also functions on that level as a critique of that locus of community um, that has broken down as well. Yes, absolutely. Because the real easy solution here, I mean, look, this idea of like, let's fake her death will ever pretend to be dead for a two-day wake and then bury an empty... I mean, that's a ludicrous plan, right? right. Absolutely absolutely ludicrous plan. And it's also just a dumb idea, uh, right? You you could just... This, I mean, this is what nunneries are for, right? You could send her off to live in a convent and, you know, you could make that uh, more convenient, make that easier by, uh, instead of bribing the priest, you take that money and give that to the nunnery that she's going to go to. So you can ensure the uh, health or at least, you know, su- contribute to the health of that institution and its ability to be a place for your daughter to live a full life. And here actually is maybe a place where the father his love for this daughter actually hurts her because maybe this was even talked about. Maybe sending her to a nunnery was something that was considered, but the father didn't want to do that because he doesn't want to lose his daughter. He wants her to stay in the house. As far as I can tell, she's the only person in the house that he's actually like buddies with. I don't right. think he likes his wife very much. Certainly not his mother-in-law and possibly not even his other daughter all that much. And so he would lose his only person. So, you know, maybe they even talked about that as an option, though. I, I like it better if it's a critique. Yeah, it, it certainly works well as a critique. The corruption of the church, the corruption of social norms that won't accept somebody who's uh, an outsider when that's like literally the directive of a Christian community. <laughs> you know, it's like an explicit command or an explicit definition of true religion. Um, that this is this is a story where uh, on, on, the, on the broadest possible level of analysis where uh, econ- economic mobility and improvement usurp all other duties and obligations. And so that's that's kind of the broadest level at which this story is working as a critique. Well, let me switch tacks here a little bit, Brandon, and and try to open up the world of this story a little bit, because we've been talking about, you know, what are some of the other possibilities here? You know, what other solutions might there have been? What is the society like? What are the pressures on it? But we've not actually at any point in this episode talked about where and when this story is actually taking place. We have not yet explicitly said what society this even is here. And uh, the reason for that is that Atwood is not explicit about that. And so this is something we have to suss out for ourselves. And that's the question, Brandon, where and when do you think this story takes place? Yeah, I can't answer that question. And here's why, because my brain is full of, uh, (laughs) A game called Bloodborne, which is like late Victorian monster slaying game. It's extremely difficult. I, I always get very frustrated playing it, but sometimes I deeply need that aesthetic. Uh, and uh, the main town, the main city that you're in is called Yarnum. And so I just couldn't stop imagining this being somewhere in the countryside outside of Yarnum. So that's a terrible answer, (laughs) but definitely that kind of late Victorian country gentry type of period is the aesthetic I just cannot shake as being a part of this story. Yeah, let's interrogate this. I think we can figure this out from the evidence of the text. So it's two questions I've asked you. Where 
and when. Let's do when uh-huh. first, right? Because we've actually got dates in the story. Um, one thing I should say, even before we dig into that, is that the where is more difficult because we don't get any names. So we don't know what language things are here. Uh, but we do get dates, right? And we get the dates in the form of the narrator telling us what she reads. She reads Byron, she reads Keats, and she reads Pushkin. What's interesting here about the where this is, is that two of these are English writers and right. one of them is Russian. <laughs> and so she could be reading them in their native languages. She could be reading them all in an English translation, maybe all in a Russian translation or all translated into something else. We don't know. But these dates at least tell us that these people have uh, at least been alive. They, they may even be currently alive. But here's the point. <laughs> it's got to at least be like the 1830s. It might even be a little bit later than that. But I don't think that we're in the 20th century at all. I think your no, instinct that so yeah, your impulse yeah. here that it's 19th century is is definitely right. So before we move to the where though, I just also want to comment on these writers because this is kind of a joke, right? These yeah. are all poets, oh, yeah. but they've all got vampire stories. Right. They've all got vampire <laughs> poems. <laughs> uh, and it definitely was a, a laugh out loud or at least a chuckle out loud moment for, for me. Right. Uh, I really appreciated that. But yeah, so let's talk about where certainly we see that this society is agrarian or it's agricultural, right? That this is uh, a farming community. They live in a kind of farmhouse. They're doing well financially, but that there is a bigger city somewhere that's got doctors. Uh, they have a local priest, all of, and, and clearly a Christian priest, although not ever, although that's not ever explicitly stated. But here's where I actually think that the use of the word priest is probably important in that. I think that means that we're not dealing with England here. Uh, I think that priest mm. is not mm-hmm. the word that would be used here. And right. I, I do also think that Pushkin is really interesting here as, uh, as something that she has access to read. And so I have a feeling like this is somewhere actually in the Russian empire and that we're talking about an orthodox priest uh, and that, you know, we're maybe like 1840s, 1850s, you know, more or less contemporary actually to Gogol's uh, story, The Portrait. Yeah, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm totally in agreement with you about that, that, that there is that sense of that um, Eastern European lore that really comes through in the story. And maybe that's just because of the baggage that vampires have. Um, But yeah, I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. Right. Well, and also, of course, explicitly, that's something that is said in the story is that the type of monster she resembles, which we as readers know is vampire, uh, is part of the local folklore, which then also means that, you know, that can't be England. That's not part of the local folklore of, of England. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is Eastern Europe. I think I feel confident saying that, though, of course, I would love to hear I would love to hear readers argue with us about that, you know, make a case for it being being somewhere else. I, I love these types of arguments. So a Catholic, got, a Catholic district or ward in Canada, maybe. So. Right? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that could be I would love to read that argument. That would be amazing. But I've got one last question, Brandon, before we put this story to bed. And this is uh, a counterfactual question. And it's really just, uh, you know, thinking about sort of where and when we are, I'm just wondering what the city is is like. And so I want us to think about alternatives here because I, I was talking earlier about sending the narrator to a convent as an alternative solution to faking her death and making her haunt her own house and then become an actual vampire. Uh, but also, you know, there was this doctor, right, who came and said, you should send her to the city. 
where she could be studied by other doctors, possibly that's still on the table as an option when the family's talking about what to do. And so I just wonder what you think, Brandon, what would actually have become of the narrator if she had gone to the city with the doctor, either as uh, a child or perhaps later at the moment when they're deciding to fake her death? That's a great question. I can't help but thinking that the doctors would have killed her <laughs> through experimentation <laughs> in like the 1840s of being like, you know, let's let's actually drain 80% of her blood to see if that improves her condition or, you know, what's the role that leeches play with porphyria or something like that. Um, just the, the kinds of uh, experimentation is not going to involve looking at genetics or uh, anything like that. It's like, how does lizard blood versus hen blood, uh, the types of questions that might be asked, in other words, may not be the, the best questions for the case of this narrator. And I also think she'd be viewed primarily as a specimen and secondarily as a, as a person. So I don't think it would have really worked out well for her. Um, and maybe the father had an intuition about this, though uh, perhaps not. But what's what's your sense? Well, that's exactly my sense. And I do think the father had an intuition about that, right? That the doctor was essentially suggesting that they hand this child over to be experimented on uh, until she dies. And uh, yeah, the father absolutely was not about to, to do that. And I, yeah, I definitely think that's what would have happened. Though, um, I also can envision another story, a short story, or actually, I guess what I'm envisioning probably as a, a novel that takes this as the point of departure from what Atwood has done, where the child here, the narrator does, in fact, go with the doctor to the city, perhaps is experimented on a little bit, and then escapes and uh, is on the streets of, you know, whatever city this is. I don't know. M you know, maybe it's, um, you know, maybe it's Minsk or something like that. We don't we don't really know. But um, it gets into the streets and, you know, becomes a, I don't know, a pickpocket, ri rises through the ranks of the local thieves guild or something. Uh, I'm envisioning Oliver Twist, except, you know, it's about a vampire kid, essentially. <laughs> yeah, or she's cured and becomes a low-key superhero who also drinks blood uh, or something <laughs> like that. You know, who knows? <laughs> Some experiment goes wrong, they irradiate her or something, you know. She <laughs> she, she gets some uh, toxic ooze on her from uh, uh, a cart, a horse and cart delivery. Of, I don't even know where toxic ooze would come from in the 1840s, but it's going to come from somewhere. <laughs> I mean, where does toxic ooze ever come from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's easier to believe in the age of nuclear power than it is in the 19th century. <laughs> well, I would read either of these uh, these alternative stories here. So, I, so, so I hope someone in the audience will take us up on it and uh, at least write one of them, if not both of them. But I think now that we are pitching different stories than the one that we got, I think that's <laughs> going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thank you so much for these commissions. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Yes, thank you so very much for this commission. It was a real joy to read Margaret Atwood again, who I just have not read in well, well over uh, a decade at this point. And this story was just awesome. Had a great time reading it. Had an awesome time doing this episode. So I really appreciate the impetus for that. And if other listeners would like to commission an episode, we would love to do that for you. And you can do that by visiting the website. Uh, you can contact us via email or Twitter or Reddit. 
If you're a Patreon supporter, you get a discount on commissions and even free episodes at some levels. And hey, Patreon's got a message system as well, so you can write to us that way also. And we really do love doing these episodes. So if you do have something that you'd like to hear us talk about, favorite story, we hope you'll contact us. So next time, we're going to be back with something, probably, (laughs) a story about something. Uh, Because this was a commissioned episode, it means we recorded it actually a year ago before the next episode was chosen by our Patreon supporters. But if you're one of the listeners who likes to read along with us, you can find out what is next by checking out the other side page at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, whatever that is, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.